Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode 40, where we go back Back to the the past past. and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can get us every Sunday morning, usually, uh, on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or catch us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, and During a Full Moon. I'm glad I didn't try to do my wolf because I don't think it was good. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm sure I wish I hadn't done it either. Uh, this story arc, this very woven story arc, is uh, mm. and the issue that we're going to talk about is requested by Paulie P, that bearded bastard, who is a uh, friend of the show and a longtime uh, friend of comics in general. So uh, thanks for that. The comic we're doing specifically. Are we doing ElfQuest again? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we're doing uh, Captain America number 405, Cap Wolf. Hmm. August 1992, writer Mark Gruenwald, pencils by Rick Levins, inks by Steve Alexandrov, colors by Gina Going, letters by Joe Rosen, covered but done by Rick Levins and Danny Bulanati, and the cover price was 100, uh, 125 pennies, yes. uh, USD, uh, $2.50 Canadian. And we are going to do the whole, this is a six-issue arc, but we are going to specifically do our thing for Captain America 405. Sure, we're not going to ignore the rest, but uh, we will give. You can't ignore our... the rest, Chris. <laughs> no, we, we have to have it all. <laughs> but uh, the uh, but four oh five will be on the treadmill with us. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the story, we're going to talk about the creators. We got uh, Mark Grunewald here. This is Mark Gru or Gruny Grunewald? Born June 18, 1953, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to say that. Uh, you did it. Oshkosh. His parents were Myron and Norma Jean. He had a sister named Gail. Uh, he published his own fanzine called Omniverse, which explored the concept of comics continuity. God bless him. Uh, yeah. The first issue was uh, published in 1977. We need something like that now. Yep. Uh, he wrote text articles for DC Comics' official fanzine, which is The Amazing World of DC Comics, including uh, The Martian Chronicles, which was a history of the Martian Manhunter that appeared in issue number 13, cover date October 1976. Also, several articles on the history of the Justice League in issue 14, which came out March of 1977. Uh, in 1978, Mark would be hired by Marvel, where he would remain for the rest of his career. And, and you know, it's that's that. Yep. Uh, he was initially an assistant editor, but he was promoted to full editor by Jim Shooter in 1982. Uh, he was put in charge of uh, the Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, Spider-Woman, and What If? Uh, at this time, Mark shared an office with Denny O'Neill, who's a man that he regarded as a mentor. Isn't that, I mean, that's a weird collection of comics, you know? Isn't it? You kind of expect these comics to be lined up in a certain, I guess, by certain groups, but it just seems like, yeah, here's stuff that needs editing. Here you go. Yeah, this this is what fell off the tape. Exactly. Uh, Now, during these initial years, 1982 to 1984, Gruenwald did some penciling work for a handful of Marvel comics. Uh, he He penciled the entire Hawkeye Limited series in 1983, various issues of What If, Marvel Team of Annual, and the Incredible Hulk, and Quest Probe. 
And Do you more, remember Quest Probe? I, I don't remember Quest Probe. That was, a, like, that was a video game tie. I feel like I'm, I remember a, a covers to it. Yeah, yep. it was uh, like I, the logo leaps out of me, but I can't remember ever having seen an interior. Yeah, it was supposed to go four issues, and only three of them came out. Yeah, that's sort of a uh, microcosm <laughs> for the whole video game industry at the time, right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's another sort of quest-type situation. Uh, so Mark also drew Merlin the Archer for Who's Who in the definitive director of the DC Universe, Volume 15, May 1986, his only artwork for a company besides Marvel. And I think it's kind of interesting that he's you know exclusive to Marvel on staff, Mm-hmm. But able to go, you know, do a little work for DC. I think it speaks to his general belovedness throughout the industry. Absolutely. Uh, now, Gruenwald, Stephen Grant, and Bill Mantlo co-wrote Marvel Superhero Contest of Champions, June August 1982. This is we've talked about it. Marvel's and really comics in general's first limited series ever. Uh, you know, the crossovers or whatever mm-hmm. event, I guess you call it. <laughs> um, Mark produced the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. It was 15 issues in 1982. The idea was Jim Shooters, but Mark was the uh, guy that made it happen. In 1984, Mark Grunewald was one of the masterminds behind a public access cable TV show called Cheap Laughs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Mike Carlin was the other mastermind. The show featured many members of Marvel staff. It was like a sketch comedy show on a really low budget, sort of like a uh, like really bad SNL type thing. <laughs> you can actually see two episodes on YouTube. Uh, oh, very it's, nice. It's pretty crazy. It's it's definitely a time capsule for the early eighties. Yeah, in the 1970s, when Marvel's letters columns were answered most often by assistant editors uh, who would sign as a f- friendly armadillo, in remembrance of this practice, which was ended by Jim Shooter when he came in in the late 70s, Mark created a villain named Armadillo in Captain America 305, August 1985. So he got a little legacy there. And he wrote Captain America from 1985 to 1995, which will include the issue we discussed today. That's a hell of a run. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, across the table, we have the artist, Rick Levins. He was born October 10th, 1950, in Somerville, New Jersey. Before getting into comics, he worked for the U.S. Post- Postal Service. Um, he went to art school while a civil servant, and that put him on the path to uh, do comics. Uh, he drew the four-part series Nosferatu, Plague of Terror, which was written by Mark Ellis in 1992 for Millennium Publications. Uh, much of his early work would be for Millennium including Americomics, Dragonfly, The Armageddon Factor, Night Vale, and Femforce. Uh, along the way, he also worked uh, for some other independent publishers, including Innovation and Comico. Uh, he would start working at Marvel in, 1990, in 1989, uh, where he had a short run on The Avengers and a much longer run on the book we're going to be dis- discussing today, Captain America, uh, three years from 1991 to 1994, including the very issue we're going to be discussing. Yeah, number 405. So mm-hmm. pretty interesting uh, character that came out of the post office to do uh, comics. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Usually it goes the other way around, you know. People yep. <laughs> try their hand at comics. They're like, "Well, that ain't working." But anyway, uh, so now we want to talk about who is Captain America. You know, there was a a Captain America before Captain America. It was a, a character named the Shield, introduced in Pep Comics number one, January nineteen forty, published by MLJ Comics, which we would know today as Archie. This was created by Harry Shorten and Irv Novick. Uh, his origin was that after his military father is killed in the Black Tom explosion, chemist Joe Higgins figures out a process involving chemicals and exposure to x-rays that gives him the basic power set of Golden Age Superman. Uh, not too surprising, but, you know, very similar to our pal, 
you know, Captain America will be talking sure. about in a minute. The S.H.I.E.L.D. eventually becomes an agent for the FBI, his secret identity known only to J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, a Black Tom explosion, by the way, that happened on July 30th, 1916 in Jersey City, New Jersey. It was an act of sabotage by German agents to destroy American-made munitions that were being supplied to the Allies in World War One. So this was something, I think, still part of... You know, cultural history at the time that you could reference, and now we don't know, sure. don't know what the heck it is unless I uh, look it up. <laughs> that's true, uh, but that's not the Captain America we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the real deal. Uh, he was created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. First appeared in Captain America Comics number one, cover date March 1941, on sale December 20th, 1940 or thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, scrawny Steve Rogers from the Lower East Side of Manhattan takes part in a military experiment. He's injected with a super serum. That Bulks him out and makes him invulnerable. Pretty much the same as the uh, same power set as the Golden Age Superman. More or less, so, yeah. uh, so uh, not 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 too different from our uh, our our shield named friend. Mm. Um, now initially he would carry a triangular shaped shield. It was uh, had like the three peaks or, or no, it just had the flat end and then it came to a point. Right, but it, um, but it basically did look like bunting. It was like the vertical yeah. red stripes, red and white stripes, and then like uh, and then stars, the star and stars on the top. top yeah. Now, uh, MLJ complained of the shield's similarity to the one carried by their character, the shield. So, and and thankfully, because this led uh, Simon and Kirby to create the uh, the more familiar and more famous disc shape that we have, and that appeared in issue two and uh, has been around ever since. Ever since, and it's definitely one of the most you know the iconic thing I iconic, think of the character. Yep. So. And became a weapon, as we'll come to find. But mm-hmm. uh, the very first issue of Captain America comics sold close to a million copies. While Dang. it was obviously a popular magazine, though some people did object at the time. Joe Simon recalled, "When the first issue came out, we had a lot of threatening letters and hate mail. Some people really opposed what Cap stood for. There were so many threats, including from people loitering around Timely Comics offices. This was Marvel before it was Marvel." Uh, Mayor Fiero LaGuardia p- p- posted a police detail around the building, but LaGuardia also personally contacted Simon and Kirby to offer his support. He he was he was approved of Captain America. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stanley Lieber, better known as Stan Lee, contributed to issue three in a filler text story, Captain America Foils the Traitor's Revenge. And this introduced the character's use of the shield as a throwing weapon that returned to its thrower. How about that? So Stan Lee invented that, folks. He that he can own that. He can. Now, uh, circulation figures remained close to a million copies per month after the debut issue, even outstripping the circulation of news magazines such as Time during the period. Uh, Captain America Comics ran until issue number 73, cover date July 1949. After that, it was retitled Captain America's Weird Tales for two issues. Uh, the last one was a horror anthology with no superheroes. Go <laughs> yeah, figure. Strange as hell. <laughs> Uh, Atlas Comics would uh, reintroduce Captain America along with the original Human Torch and the Submariner in Young Men number 24. This was uh, a few years later. This is December 1953. Uh, Captain America would also appear the, the following year in Young Men number 24 through 28 and Men's Adventures number 27 through 28, as well as issues uh, 76 and 78, or through 78. That's uh, July through September 1954 of that uh, that same title. Yeah, but I didn't really take there, and uh, they kind of put that to bed. Superheroes kind of went to bed in general, unless they were the uh, folks from DC that we know, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, you know the, you know, the gang. Sure. Uh, but, you know, Marvel did have its Marvel age. Uh, you know, Fantastic mm-hmm. Four came out, and they brought back superheroes to popularity in the early 60s, so there was the return of Captain America. 
In Strange Tales number 114, November 1963, a human torch, Johnny Storm story, uh, titled Captain America, depicts Johnny in an exhibition performance with legendary World War II superhero Captain America. At the end of the 18-page story, it proves this Cap is an imposter, actually a villain named the Acrobat. The Acrobat is a form of circus performer that the Torch had defeated in Strange Tales 106, March 1963, so there was some continuity there. But a caption in the final panel says, this story was a test to see if readers would like Captain America to return, and it seems like they did. They did, because uh, not too long after, he does return. And uh, the the one that you think of when you think of Captain America coming back, yep. this is Avengers number four, March 1964. This is by Stan and Jack. Uh, it turns out that Captain America fell from an experimental plane and was frozen in the North Sea since the end of World War II. Uh, later, those uh, the 1950s appearances in Young Men and whatnot uh, would be explained as, uh, as having been other people under the mask. Sure. Um, now, set adrift by Namor, he's picked up by the Avengers who thaw him out. And he's almost instantly made the yeah. leader of the Avengers. <laughs> it's like, it's like here's, here's a blanket. Uh, we'll you warm up and we need you to lead us. From We're going to follow you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, most of Cap's Silver Age stories were kind of like fish out of water tales where he tried to cope with the, you know, the comparably go-go world of the right. 60s yeah. compared to his, uh, you know, his hi-fi and whatever. Well, look at the skirts um, on these ladies, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, initially, yes. <laughs> Initially, as as you mentioned, uh, or I, I, one of us mentioned, Steve Rogers was injected with the super serum. But when he returned to the Silver Age and needed his origin retold, uh, the serum was administered orally, because in the in the time he was down, there was something called the Comics Code uh-huh. <laughs> that restricted against uh, drug use in in any form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, can, you can hear a lot about that in some of our early episodes. Uh, now, this is later later shown to be drugs taken orally and intravenously, combined with a training regimen as well as exposure to the Vita Ray. Yeah, it's a lot more common. You can't just, it gets like, wild. You can't yeah. just uh, inject the Captain America serum anymore. It's a whole lifestyle. So mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, this, like we said, this, uh, this entire arc, this is a six-issue story arc. It's called Man and Wolf. So we're going to go through, you know, what happens in every issue, but we're going to concentrate on 405 and really detail that one out. But we start it with Captain America number 402, July 1992. That one's titled The Prowling. Uh, having gone through an ordeal that brought a mentally stunted Dennis Dunphy, a.k.a. the Demolition Man, back into the fold, Captain America decides to take leave of absence from the Avengers to find his old buddy, former astronaut and current pilot John Jameson. As well as his girlfriend, Diamondback, although this doesn't seem to be a high priority for the rest of this. I'm going to tell you now, and then we will get to her a little bit later, but it's funny. He mentions her here, and I don't think they mention her. That's it. Um, Cap leaves Black Widow in charge of the team while he goes away. He uh, learns about a rash of killings in Massachusetts that seem werewolf-related, and that gives him a lead on John Jameson because... In Amazing Spider-Man number 124 from September 1973... By Jerry Conway and Gil Kane, John Jameson returns from a mission to the moon with a moonstone that turns him into a werewolf. And he's actually a werewolf named Manwolf for mm-hmm. much of Conway's run on Spider-Man, which I think is pretty great. Uh, he, he was even the lead feature in Creatures on the Loose from issue number 30 in July 74 to number 37 in September 1975. So he has some werewolf pedigree in his past. Certainly. Uh, Cap finds out the Moonstone had disappeared from Empire State University, and J. Jonah Jameson hasn't heard from his son in two years. 
Now, in lieu of Doctor Strange, who is currently having a, a bit of a kerfuffle with the Avengers, mm. Cap enlists Doctor Druid to help him suss out the paranormal paranormal mystery in Starksboro, Massachusetts. Uh, you have a sign when you go in there. It's a nice place to live. Population nine thirty two. Wow. <laughs> now, Doctor Druid, who is also known as Druid, also known as Doctor Droom, first appeared in Amazing Adventures number one. This is June nineteen sixty one, uh, created by Stan and Jack, and this actually is before. Fantastic Four, so he yep. is a uh, pre-Fantastic Four character. That's right, just like, um, kind of like a Groot kind of guy or whatever. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, now, his full name is Dr. Anthony Ludgate Druid, uh, or Ludgate, maybe. Um, <laughs> he was trained by a Tibetan Lama who would come to the U.S. for medical attention. He has essentially the same power set as Dr. Strange, only not as powerful. Um, and it's, it would I would imagine his costume is probably a lot easier to draw. Definitely, yeah. It's just like a red yeah. tunic and a, and a normal cape instead of all those crazy designs around the edges. Sure, to sure. Up. Now, upon arrival in Stocksboro, uh, Dr. Druid and Captain America are attacked by Ferocia. Uh, she first appeared in Marvel Premiere number 15, uh, cover date May 1974. Uh, she was created by Kurt Busiek, Ernie Chan, and Mike Mignola. Uh, Ferocia, Ferocia, yeah, <laughs> is uh, Danny Rand's mother, and Danny Rand is, of course, Iron Fist. Uh, she is Heather, and she had sacrificed herself to a pack of Kunlun wolves so her son would survive. Ferocia swipes a good chunk out of Dr. Druid and takes him out of commission. Um, a fella named Moonhunter speeds on, <laughs> speeds by on a flying boogie board and yokes her with a silver lariat. Uh, we see him earlier in the issue whipping some captured werewolves, so he's kind of like a cowboy, but for werewolves. So he's a, a basically a werewolf boy. Is that what you call him? Yes, yes, mixed with Lobo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, also, at the beginning of the issue, and this is probably the reason why... <laughs> We're having this series here. Uh, Wolverine shows up in Star and yep. Sharks uh, to investigate some of these murders, and uh, that will be, of course, important later. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Uh, it, it, Captain America number four hundred three. That's July nineteen ninety two. All this took place in two months, by the way, or three months. Yeah, these uh, were by by, yeah. by by weekly. So yeah, this wasn't a drawn out affair. Uh, City of Wolves is the title of this one. Moon Hunter subdues Ferocious and takes off with her. Cap follows them secretly. Moonhunter brings Ferocious' unconscious, wolfy form to Dr. Nightshade in some secret laboratory. Tilda Johnson, a.k.a. Nightshade, first appeared in Captain America number 164, August 1973, by Steve Engelhardt and Alan Lee Weiss. She developed a serum that turns people into obedient werewolves and calls herself Queen of the Werewolves, though she is not a werewolf. And she actually hadn't been—this was the second time she's been seen is uh, right here, so it's not like she's been hanging around in the Marvel Universe all this time. Indeed, Dr. Nightshade is distilling blood from Jack Russell to make the serum Jack Russell is a Transylvanian immigrant formerly known as Jacob Russoff First appeared in Marvel Spotlight No. 2, February 1972 By Jerry Conway, Roy Thomas, and Mike Plug. His story is that he's basically a run-of-the-mill werewolf I, There's not much more to say about it <laughs> Well, by night. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, Dr. Nightshade reports to Druid. No, not Dr. Druid, just Druid. This is a uh, full name, Dreadmund Druid. Uh, we will call him Dreadmund to make things easier for you and us. <laughs> yes. Uh, Dreadmund would first appear in Strange Tales, Volume 1, Number 144, uh, May 1966, by Stan and Jack. He's a, a cult leader who can control people with telepathy, which is, you know, 
probably what you want when you're trying to control people. Yeah, as a cult, uh, that's, you need that, yeah. I think that that would help you. Uh, now, Dredmond informs Dr. Nightshade that he's got the Moonstone, and this, was, this must be what's luring the werewolf type of characters to the area. Uh, meanwhile, Wolverine is getting too close to the source of these werewolf murders, so he's attacked. By werewolves. Hey, look at that. Very convenient. <laughs> yeah, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, Moon Hunter subdues Wolverine by shooting him point blank three times in the chest and then brings him back to the lab naturally. Uh, Captain America and Dr. Druid make it to the center of the town of Starksboro and they are surrounded by werewolves. Look at that. So now we move on. Mm-hmm. Captain America number 404, August 1992. Children of the Night. <laughs> uh, Dreadman's able to levitate away from the wolf pack and teleport himself and Cap to the roof of a church. He also turns them invisible, including their scent. It's a pretty, very powerful guy. Uh, <laughs> Cap and Dr. Druid are able to shake Moonhunter and the werewolves, and in the light of day, the werewolves re- revert to their human forms. At the lab, Dr. Nightshade tries to apply the werewolf serum to Wolverine, but because of his healing factor, he absorbs and overcomes the serum in moments. You even see, like, he, he does transform... And then, like, immediately absorbs just it. regresses just back, yeah. goes right back to being Logan. So it's it's pretty pretty cool, in the, you know, visually. Sure. Dredman figures he's wolvish enough already and just hypnotizes him. That's, <laughs> he's like, that's fine. He's already he got the claws. We're good. Uh, Cap and Druid find Dredman's lair and are immediately attacked by Wolverine and Nightshade. And she's now wearing a kind of spiked gimp suit, but she doesn't even get too directly involved. She just sort of hangs back and, and tells Wolverine what to do. Uh, Dr. Druid also disappears off somewhere. Before Wolverine can deliver a killing blow on Captain America, Moonhunter fires a dart into his chin, rendering Cap unconscious. Cap wakes up in Dr. Nightmare's... It's not Nightmare, Nightshade? Nightshade's werewolf laboratory, about to be injected with that wolfy serum. Hmm, that brings us right to our main event, Captain America number 405, cover date August 1992. Dances with Werewolves is the title. You got you to hand that to them. Really? Uh, now, the cover is, it's it's a fairly iconic cover. I think you'll know it if you see it. Yeah. It's uh, Captain America elbowing his shield toward the reader, and his decidedly lupine-looking head is in shadow. You can tell he's a, you know, he's a werewolf behind Something's it. Something's up with his head, yeah. This is not his sure. normal, normal uh, round-headed... His head. normal profile, yeah. And it's another red cover, Chris. I'm telling you, it seems like every Marvel comic we do has a, has a bright red cover. It must be a, th- a thing. It must be. Uh, now, the opening splash shows a Cap restrained on a gurney. Dr. Nightshade is about to inject some purple solution into his bicep. Uh, the double-page splash following depicts his transformation from Captain America to Cap Wolf. Uh, it's actually done in the classic, you know, Universal Studios kind of way, showing Cap's different body parts changing before he goes full werewolf and, of course, breaks free of his bonds. Yeah. Um, Cap leaps up from the table and shoves Dr. Nightshade against a wall. Now, it doesn't look kind of like Wiley e. Coyote in this one scene right here. It's just like, is that a wolf? <laughs> All right, fine. That's very, very funny-looking face. He's doggish. Uh, okay. Cap is running away, and Dredman calls out to him. Dredman says, Captain America, stop! Look at me! <laughs> then Dredman tries to use his hypno eyes against Cap Wolf, but Cap, uh, Cap just grabs his shield and bursts through a wall with a butt room. Mm-hmm. All the while, Cap Wolf has these like disjointed thoughts that are like evidence. We can read them in blood red captions, but his mm-hmm. uh, Steve Rogers' mind has become stunted or changed somehow. Yeah, he rushes up a flight of stairs and busts out of a door with a batram. It's midday, and there are several human onlookers, and they're very startled by what they see. Yeah. 
as he goes out bright sun too bright hurts eyes feel funny sick inside now dr nightshade and dreadman they run to the doorway to see what's happening dr nightshade says this shouldn't have happened dreadman my my serum's never given any of the subjects such phenomenal strength before and dreadman replies it appears that your potion interacted with the super soldier serum you should have anticipated it Point one to Dreadman. I gotta say, you know, you really should have thought about that. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, how might this affect anyway? But uh, Dreadman calls out to the bystanders. He says, you people, why aren't you stopping him? Stop that wolf. One of the bystanders says, but sir, he'll tear us apart. It's not right. And another bystander who happens to look like a young Denny O'Neill yeah. says, <laughs> says, yeah, we're not wolfing. Then I'll make you. And Dreadman stretches his hand and turns them into wolf people. Now go hunt him down! <laughs> Dreadman notes that Cap Wolf did not re- revert to human form in sunlight. Dr. Nightshade says she gave him a new compound that'll also make him easier to track. Yeah, I call that compound story convenience. It's especially a uh, device. So. <laughs> she distilled that from uh, <laughs> several fiction novels. They took some dais, some X, and some, <laughs> and some machina and blended them together. <laughs> mixed exactly. them all together. <laughs> uh, Cap Wolf seen running beside some trees. Yes, and his caption goes, Woods, run free. Need to run. Need to run. Need to run. Now, we cut over to Central Park, Manhattan, and uh, Bernice Rosenthal and Jarvis from the Avengers Mansion are taking a catatonic Dennis Dunphy out for a walk. <laughs> Bernice gets her purse stolen You know what, this is like this whole seeding of an upcoming story Kind of a leftover from the previous one Seeding for an upcoming one That we didn't even mention in the recaps from before So I'm just gonna let this whole thing slip by But this is very typical And like textbook Marvel Story seeding for future Subplot stuff But it's not important to any Cap Wolf thing So we're just gonna gloss right over it Uh, Back in Starksboro Dr. Druid's visiting the local chapel Yes, and he thinks to himself, I hope Captain America doesn't think I deserted him. No, I'm certain he can handle himself. While I use the distraction he's providing to search for the hidden power behind the town of werewolves. Buddy, if you knew what you've been missing, you wouldn't feel so safe by Captain America, but... Uh, then in a very up, in a very unflattering upshot of Doctor <laughs> Druid, like really, why, why do you draw that? Anyway, uh, he knows that the church's usual religious accoutrement have been replaced by Celtic and Druid-related stuff. He continues to think, I am the foremost authority on Druidism in this country, yet I am unaware that this town, being the center of nature worship of the ancient Celts. Well, maybe you're not. It could be either one. (laughs) Maybe he's not the authority he thought he was. You know, this guy really has. It seems like in order to be a magician, you have to have a really big ego. You ever notice that? Superiority. Really? Yeah. I really have a complex. Uh, Dr. Druid finds a hidden study, and within it is the moonstone. It's sort of hovering under a glass dome back there. Just then, Dreadman sneaks up from behind. Druid continues to think A figure in the shadows How is it I did not sense his approach Dreadman says You do not belong here But he's going to be made to feel plenty welcome In just a minute Yeah. Uh, the two of them have a druidic face off Shooting telepathy rays that cancel the other one out uh, It's sort of reminiscent of the old Steve Ditko drawn Doctor Strange stories Yeah where they kind of look at each other and just shoot beams and just, and, Yeah they, uh, they, they hold their fingers Akimbo Or panels you know what I mean <laughs> yep. I, I love that stuff Dreadman says, I've heard of you. 
Can't say the same. Ice cold, boy. Mm, I know. Uh, Now back to the woods. Cap Wolf is trying to collect his thoughts while the other werewolves crowd around him. He tries to explain himself, but he can't speak. But he can think. And what he thinks is, ask them what I am. Can't speak. Words in head, but lost in throat. Must tell them I'm not enemy. Not a hider. Not hunted. Person who, who made us this is enemy. These other wolves really aren't trying to hear that, and he's not, even, he's not even saying anything, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, <laughs> Cap Wolf was able to leave above the crowd something he didn't know he could do. Go back to human town. Find enemy. Forced to turn me back. And Wolverine leaps out from the treetops to attack Cap Wolf. Man with long claws. I know him. Forgot name. You should probably contact the Marvel sales department. They'll be happy to tell you exactly who that They'll is. They'll fill him in real good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, there's this unnamed man with claws. Uh, slams his claws against Capwell's shield with a scratch, throwing sparks. Uh, at first, Wolverine has the upper hand. Then Capwolf snaps out and goes berserk. Uh, he throws Wolverine into the crowd of wolf people, a favorite fighting move of mine. Yeah. Uh, Capwolf is able to run away. Uh, back at the church, Dr. Druid and Dreadmond are still shooting magic beams at each other. He's resisting me. I'm exerting enough sheer mental force to give him a cerebral hemorrhage. How can he still be standing? Dare not lose concentration for even a moment. First one of us who blinks loses. Somehow through this, Dr. Druid consents that the Moonstone is the source of Dreadmond's power. In town, Moonhunter is riding his hoverbike around and spots Capwolf running away. And Moonhunter says, and I have to say that this voice is actually written this way, so I'm not putting on that fancy voice. <laughs> uh, Moonhunter at a base, found Flaggy. Looks like he got away from your golden boy, Wolverino. Don't worry, you got a real man in the job now. Expect them back in 10 minutes or less. Out. Not only do they have a real man on the job, they might have the main man on they the might, job. It sounds good. Like they him or Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, hey. <laughs> now, Moon Hunter throws a lasso around Capwolf's neck. Capwolf yanks him off a of Lobo's motorcycle and drags Moon Hunter behind while running away. The hover bike smashes into a house. Uh, back at Dreadman's Leia, Dr. Druid levitates an artifact in the shape of a wolf's head to shatter the glass containing the Moonstone. This is all the distraction Dreadman needs to overpower him. Dreadman stands over Dr. Druid's unconscious body. Yeah, and of course he has to announce Anthony Droom, <laughs> alias Dr. Druid, the world's leading authority on Druidism. Fah! You have been defeated, Anthony. Overwhelmed by my superior might, there is room in this world but for but one supreme druid, and henceforth that man shall be me. Death awaits the vanquished. I didn't know druidism was such a cutthroat business. Yeah, really? Uh, <laughs> one, only one allowed. Just one. Uh, now, back in town, Capwolf strides back to Dreadmond and Dr. Nightshade's pad, still trailing Moon, Moon Hunter behind him. Uh, Dr. Nightshade is waiting at the front door for him. She says, Oh, Captain, are you by any chance looking for me? To which Capwolf leaps up to the landing and thinks, Dr. Woman. Hurt me and any hope you have of changing back to human is lost forever. Do you understand? Capwolf understands, yeah. Good. Now be a good boy. Put down your shield and come with me inside. If you behave, we may be able to work something to our mutual mutual satisfaction. And that's where it wraps up. To be continued in two weeks... 
but I think we can do a little better than that. We'll finish it now. We'll, we'll do it right here for you folks. <laughs> uh, in Captain America number 406, September 1992, titled Leader of the Pack, Dr. Nightshade puts Cap Wolf in the wolf pit, where he immediately fights and bests the alpha of the pack, who is a large albino wolf. Wolf, Wolf's bane of X-Factors there, lured by the Moonstone. She mm. teaches Cap, Cap Wolf how to speak. Uh, Irish lass Rain Sinclair, a.k.a. Wolf's bane, first appeared in Marvel graphic novel number four, The New Mutants, 1982, by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud. She's a founding member of the New Mutants. Her mutant power is to turn into a werewolf while retaining her human intelligence, which is pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, now that he can speak, he organizes the pack of werewolves to work together and escape the wolf pit. It's a good thing the wolves all speak English, huh? I, this this was really weird. You you would think he could speak to the wolves better before, don't you? Wouldn't yeah. you think that he would be able to like speak the werewolf tongue? But it's, it's like <laughs> they all needed him to get speaking plain English. Now they're like, oh yeah, no problem, we can do this now. Yeah. Oh oh, that's what you wanted. Yeah, okay. I thought you wanted kibble. Uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, so topside they overpower Moonhunter and Doctor Nightshade. Cap insists Doctor Nightshade cures everyone's werewolfism right away. But she kind of distracts him and says that Dreadmon has captured Dr. Druid and is using him to perform some horrible arcane ritual that, if I had to guess, is probably werewolf-related, right? Seems like, seems like that's a theme here, yeah. Might be, yeah. Uh, Cap busts in on the scene just in time to be late. Uh, Dreadmon has slit Dr. Druid's throat and his blood spills on the Moonstone, which infuses it with spooky energy. Uh, Dreadmon jams it in his throat and begins to transform. Uh, also, earlier in the issue, Cable of X-Force finds out that Feral, who is the uh, who is X-Force's uh, resident wolfish person, yeah. has gone missing, and uh, that'll probably be a thing. Uh, as as you all, most of you probably know, Cable is the huge gun-wielding action hero from the future that first appeared in New Mutants number 86, cover date February 1990, by Rob Liefeld. Uh, we come to find out that he's actually the future-born son of Cyclops and Phoenix, or Cyclops and Madeline Pryor. Really? But that's her, her a whole clone. other thing. That's like it gets it goes way off. We don't need to know yeah. everything. <laughs> and and you know, was, speaking of Rob Liefeld, he also uh, he also created Deadpool. I'm not sure if you knew that. Oh really? I didn't know but that. He, huh. he, he, Interesting. Yeah, he did create Deadpool. I just want to make sure that we know that here. Uh, now, Feral is a uh, Maria Calasantos. She first appeared in New Mutants number 99, cover date March 1991, by Fabian Niciesa and Rob Liefeld. Uh, she was freed from captivity. She was freed from captivity by Cable, and is basically another Wolverine ripoff where powers and abilities are concerned and she happens to have a tail that's right that's that's her big difference she has a nice that's tail. her defining a prehensile tail <laughs> yes uh finally we're gonna wrap this all up this six-part story with Captain America number 407 September 1992 Lord of the Wolves uh <laughs> great great titles there Mark by the way um I don't know how to make a Lord of the like a Lord of the Dance or a Lord of the Rings joke it could, could go either way really yeah it's uh, it's pretty pretty great I, I restrained myself from saying vroom vroom when you said leader of the pack so. <laughs> there, there's a couple of all these titles are all pretty great uh Dreadburn has turned into Starwolf the most powerful werewolf of them all <laughs> Oh boy. It's like if the Marvel character Eternity was a werewolf, you know, like an outline containing yep. the cosmos. But these cosmos are not as well rendered, I think, as we've seen in the past. <laughs> but that's that's another thing. But yeah, it's just like it's just like a black outline of a werewolf with stars and like Starfield, yeah. Of them, yeah. Uh, Star Wolves werewolves and Cap Wolves werewolf buddies from the Wolf Pit mix it up. 
Catwolf frees Dr. Druid, who's still bleeding profusely from his throat, but he's okay. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Cable finds Feral on the outskirts of Stark's borough, so he sedates her. Then strolls into town to find out what the heck's going on around here. Like, he's it's totally just to draw him there. You know what I mean? Like, she's just a bait to get Cable in the, in the action. Uh, he finds a bunch of werewolves fighting each other and does what anyone in their right mind would do. He prepares to kill them all. <laughs> but Cap Wolf convinces him not to kill the werewolves, and this allows Star Wolf to capture the both of them. Sure. Now, meanwhile, the, albo- the albino former Alpha Wolf carries Dr. Druid's unconscious form to Dr. Nightshade. He turns her into a werewolf with the serum in order to force her to find a cure. Uh, Wolverine and Moonhunter break free of their restraints and burst into Dr. Nightshade's laboratory. They catch eyes with the awakened Dr. Druid, du- Dr. Druid breaking Dreadman's mind control over him. Now that Wolverine and Moonhunter can join the fray, Capwolf gets close enough to Starwolf to rip the Moonstone from his throat. Cable steps on it, reverts Starwolf back to Dreadmond. All's well that ends well. That's right, except, wait, hold on. Is it, <laughs> isn't Captain America still a werewolf here, Chris? What happened? Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I, don't, I don't seem to recall that being a uh, endless thing, but actually we will go a little bit into the next issue, not too far, but... In the very next issue, Cap Wolf and the Albino Wolf get cured right away, like within the first three or four pages. And yeah. we find out the Albino Wolf was actually John Jameson all along, which they were sort of hinting at in the book, and you kind of get the idea, but here's the proof. Incidentally, Captain America 407 is the last issue under the editorial guidance of Ralph Macchio and presumably his assistant, Pat, who was last name I couldn't Belief. find. I, I, maybe. I, I couldn't find it anywhere, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, if you say so, that probably... Uh, is correct. Uh, there's a pinup in the back of that issue drawn by Frank Miller and Bob Wiesek of Captain America wielding the American flag uh, that it highlights this fact. It kind of a, a caption explains that the editors will be going, which I thought was pretty crazy because the editors often are sort of like the invisible hand. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, this is really such a beloved run of Captain America. I think people that read it really felt like they were part of a thing, you know? So sure, sure. Uh, I think it meant Absolutely. something to them. Now, uh, we didn't mention that these issues all had backups. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, remember, way back in the first issue of the story, uh, Captain America had mentioned he was out to find Diamondback and uh, John Jameson and uh, never mentioned Diamondback again. <laughs> yep. uh, now, these backups tell the story of where Diamondback has been. Now, Diamondback is Rachel Layton. Uh, she first appeared in Captain America number 310, cover date October 1985, by uh, Mark Grunewald and Paul Neary. Uh, she was originally a mercenary, but she becomes Captain America's girlfriend. Uh, backups are pretty stock. Uh, Diamondback has been captured by Crossbones, who wants to break her will and get her to steal some of Cap's super serum lace blood in cold storage so Crossbones can get back in the good graces of Red Skull. He does this by keeping Diamondback trapped in a squalid pitch, ba- pitch black basement, keeping her barely fed and scared while training her to kill. That should do it, right? Why not? will love that. <laughs> Uh, now, in these six issues, she steals the blood, and they make it to the Red Skull's fortress, and we're left unsure if Diamondback really has come under the control of Crossbones or if she's just pulling his chain. I think later on we find out she was pulling his chain, but one thing I really, I really loved, she goes to the Avengers Mansion to get Cap's blood, and like, and she gets in, it's like a whole thing where she has to like, kind of bluff her way past the uh, front, even though, you know... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
It's like it's kept in this like college dorm style cube refrigerator in the lab. I don't know. It just seemed funny to me. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It's like, as long as it's cold. But it's like you think it would be like in like I don't know more of a under lock and key or behind some sort right? of sliding futuristic door. I mean, this is the like Avengers. You need to scan your eye where your retinas. Something like this. Yeah, exactly. Like the thumbprint and like whatever they have to like take your make sure you don't have. Uh, a gun on you or whatever it just seems so funny to me because like everything in the adventures is so like hyper technological but here it was just in a dorm fridge they should have had like a uh, you know like a uh, bag of peas and carrots yeah i love beer sticker on the front <laughs> yeah. or something anyway but uh what'd you think of this uh you you had read this before this was my very I first i was time. there on the ground floor when That's this came right. out uh... so, well, what are your what are your feelings as a veteran of the cap wolf saga uh, when I when I first read it back in 1992, uh, Marvel had actually released a uh, like this like weird little series of trading cards. It was like eight trading cards that was gonna that was promoting uh, the all the books that were gonna go bi-weekly that summer, uh-huh. and uh, one of them was this one, Captain America, and so we were all hyped up for all of these series because you know ooh they're giving us free cards at the comic store, and back then you didn't get anything for free at the comic, so you had to pay for the bag, but uh, it was just like oh we got to get this, and we get this, and it's uh, not very good. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's weird. It's like when I when I read this again just recently. And I saw Wolverine show up. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's why they did this. We, <laughs> we need to get Wolverine. More in Wolverine, book. please. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And then you see Cable. It's like, oh boy. Everybody. Okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I know the two of those. When I saw Cable, I was like, that. There's only one. There's no reason for Cable to be there. They literally like forced him into the story at the very I, end. I, I I gotta applaud their restraint on not bringing in the Punisher and Ghost Rider. I guess that's true. You know, <laughs> would have been had it. everybody. You know, uh, yeah, it was. You know, you have to read this. Kind Kind of thing in context yeah and, it's but, funny and it's silly but yeah. you know kind of knowing what we know now about the 70s marvel and kind of the revival of their horror characters and like all that crazy werewolf and also vampire output they had as well as kung fu as kind mm. of a comics code aside i think but uh uh it, you know grunewald definitely did he definitely was kind of i felt like it was kind of a love letter to that era because a lot of those characters sure. had not been seen since then you know, no. he kind of pulled them out of obscurity, and he knew who who to use, and he picked a lot of weird, you know, unseen wolfy characters, and showed how much werewolf stuff there was in the Marvel universe. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's it's a it's a goof, you know what I mean? It's yeah. it's definitely. I think it, I think this story is meant to be tongue in cheek. It's got a lot of silly elements. It's got the New England, you know, witchy town and whatever, and uh, the general idea of werewolves is kind of silly by itself. Yeah. But uh, I, I did enjoy it, but I, you know, you definitely have to enjoy it thinking that it's a little silly. You, it's you a know. lot of fun to read, but it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's not high literature. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call this one of the seminal Captain America arcs, but no, I could be very wrong about that. I'm sure others would agree, disagree. <laughs> maybe Paulie P disagrees. This is the, uh, the, the top one. But anyway, uh, we are going to take a little break right here, but when we come back, we will wrap up our stuff about, uh, the creators, and then we will also talk more about the children of the night. Woof, woof, woof. Well, as I was saying, the point of this show is, well, uh, there is no point, really. I mean, with a name like Cheap Laughs You Want, there should be a point, huh? (laughs) Well, okay, I admit it. There there is a point to this show. Yes, what should have been so self-evident that it didn't even need explaining, I've just explained. Let me explain. A cheap laugh is a special kind of laugh. It 
doesn't cost much. That doesn't mean it was free. I mean, you had to pay to get your cable installed, and there's the monthly service charge, and New York City taxes, and stamp, and all that. So, so we don't think you're getting free laughs. That's not our point. Our point is cheap laughs. We will give you, and you have my solemn word as a registered voter on this, we will give you no laugh that costs us more than $20. Is that cheap or what? <laughs> okay, so now you know about the cheap part. About the laughs. A laugh is an inarticulate sound produced by the vocal cords and nostrils, typically emitted with the mouth wide open to express a sensation of enjoyment at something funny. Clear enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> but what is funny? That's what I really want to talk about. You see, it is my belief that funniness, or humor as it is sometimes called, is simply a nervous response to the recognition that like this plastic skull, someday we're all going to die. You see, we keep death away for one instant more by laughing. <laughs> but I don't want you to take my word for it. Let's go to the man on the street, or avenue as the case may be, and see what he or she thinks what humor is all about. <laughs> oh, you're such a cutie. Thank you. Sebastian Patain here on the streets of New York City for cheap laughs. Excuse me, sir, can I ask you a question? Uh, shoot. What is humor? Humor. Well, I think humor is just a nervous response to the recognition that we're all going to die someday. Thank you, sir. Very interesting. <laughs> what is humor? Hmm, that's a toughie. I guess I'd have to say that humor is just a nervous response to the recognition that we're all going to die someday. Thank you, ma'am. Accepted theory today is that humor is simply a nervous response to the recognition that we're all going to die someday. Thank you, sir. Very interesting. Well, that about wraps it up here for the man on the street. I'm Sebastian Patain for Cheap Laughs. Thank you and good night. So, there you have it. Overwhelming testimony that we laugh because we fear death. But even though all attempts at humor stem from the same primal source, there are many different kinds of humor, or comedy, as humor that is performed is often called. I'd like to run through each of those 250 kinds of comedy known to mankind. So you should recognize them should we happen to perpetrate them on this program. Hold it, Grunwald! What is the big idea hey, here? How's it going, Mike? Uh, that camera's on. Yeah, well... What are you I, doing here? Oh, I was just... Elliot, can you get a load of this guy? Well, get up out of there. Trying to fill up our first show with your boring treatise? No, I, I was just... Get down there. <laughs> I was... Give me that. Uh, hey, it's not my wait. mic. Come on, you guys. That's my mic. He's your mic. You don't even consult us. No. You come right out here and just wing it, right? No. I've had it with you, buddy. Get up. Oh, wait. Wait a minute. First you cry. Doom, doom, doom. We'll never get the show done on time. And then you come out here and fill our 28 minutes with boring? No, it, it's... Boring? I don't even know what this is. Boring's a word, all right? You don't have a funny bone in your I, arm. Yes, I do. Let's throw this guy right off the show right now. No, right no, now. Right. that sounds good to me. We're bouncing so me, hard, we'll break his table. Hey, hey, what? what? Uh, Two. Uh, uh, welcome, welcome back, everybody. We are talking about some more Mark Gruenwald right here, uh, the guy who wrote 
the issues of Captain America that we were just talking about before the break. Uh, during his decade on Captain America, Grunewald created many new characters, including Crossbones and Diamondback, who were in those backups that we also talked about a little bit, and U.S. Agent. Mm-hmm. In the 1980s, Mark ran a weekly assistant editor's workshop to teach uh, them the trade called the class. Each, the, each class was the future editors of America, and I, I bet that they don't have this kind of training thing now, folks. No, uh, I definitely get that impression. You've got a, a <laughs> trial by fire is the way you do it nowadays. Mark had a 60-issue run on writing Quasar from 1989 to 1994, minus one issue. But he was particularly proud of writing a 12-issue Squadron Supreme miniseries from September 1985 to August 1986. This is often, I think, wrongly, but it's considered Marvel's Watchmen. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like different. It's a different take on it, but it is. It's like... Uh, a Justice League-ish or Avengers-type team coping with the realities of their existence in a way. Uh, pretty cool book, I think. Mm-hmm. He wrote 36 issues of the new universe titled DP7, 1986-1989, penciled by Paul Ryan. And on September 1, 1987, Gruenwald became Marvel's executive editor. He was especially good at keeping continuity, and that was what he was kind of tasked with doing throughout the uh, lines. We know they definitely don't have one of those. They don't have one. Definitely don't have those now. That's for sure. Uh, in Thor number three seventy two, October nineteen eighty six, Walt Simonson created the Time Variance Authority, a cosmic bureaucracy that regulates the Marvel universe. And Sal Buscema paid respect to Mark by making every member of the TVA look <laughs> like him. Okay, that was really funny. That's really cool. Um, in the uh, single panel, uh, the bullseye that ran in Marvel Comics bullpen bulletins in the late 80s, early 90s, created by Rick Parker and Barry Dutta, Mark was often a character alongside editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco. Uh, Mark was the morale booster and kind of, you know, kind of the prankster around the Marvel bullpen. Uh, once Mark made dozens of photocopies of editor Ralph Macchio's head and taped them up all around the office. Why and like not? reading about them, it was like it was like in some cases he was like coming out from behind a plant, or like coming out of you know coming off the copier. Ever like the faces were everywhere. It's crazy. That's great. Uh, Mark would open his upstate home for the weekend each summer for a weekend each summer for what he called industry irregulars, people working in comics from DC and Marvel. Wow. Uh, Mark Grunewald, yeah, that, that's pretty crazy. I mean, it just shows what a beloved and inclusive kind of guy. It was like, just seems like a nice dude from no way Yeah, about. it's, and in, in all of our research, we've never found a bad thing said about no, him. People, and, uh, yeah, he's almost like Archie Goodwin kind of, like no one ever said anything bad about him, you know? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and just the thought of <laughs> all the Marvel and DC guys just getting together for a weekend. I know. You know, it's... I can't imagine that now, especially since they're all over the country now. But yeah, it's very yeah. strange. And and they're they're all writing movies instead of right. It. But <laughs> um, unfortunately, our story has a uh, sad ending. Uh, Mark Ruinwald would pass away from a heart attack resulting from a congenial heart defect on April twelfth, nineteen ninety six, in Pauling, New York. Uh, he was a well-known practical joker, and many of his friends and colleagues thought news of his death was actually a prank. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's odd because days before his death, he had, he was doing cartwheels in the hallway of Marvel's offices. Hmm. Um, in accordance with his request, he was cremated, and his ashes were mixed in with the ink used to print the first printing of the trade paperback compilation of Squadron Supreme, which uh, I, I happened to cross one last year. It's uh, it's really uh, really nice to have that. Yeah. 
Um, a little piece of Mark Grunewald on your shelf. Very nice. Right on my shelf, yep. Uh, Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris and Mark's widow Catherine, who he'd married in 1992, ensured his ashes were mixed with the ink for the first trade paperback. Yeah, she remembered. Uh, the day Mark passed away, I came back from the hospital and opened up the will, and it said he wanted his organs donated and then to be cremated and his ashes put into a comic book. I told Marvel of his wishes, and they agreed to put out a poster of the Marvel Universe with his ashes in it. Uh, that was printed, colored by Christy Scheel, but it was nagging at me that it, he wasn't in a comic book, because that is what he wanted. Marvel decided to reissue Squadron Supreme as a graphic novel, and I remember him bringing me the entire set of issues when I was laid up healing from hernia surgery. I was flat on my back in a captive audience and enjoyed reading it. I could see why it was his favorite, because he was able to spread his creative wings, really take a big risk and not be restricted, and branch outside the actual Marvel Universe and tell a different kind of story than was usually crafted. Yeah, the fans responded in kind. It was one of his best-selling efforts. They were ready for something completely different, and it was the right time for him to delve into a new concept. He was so pleased that the fans were with him and got what he was putting forth in the book. He was extremely proud of Squadron Supreme, and Marvel just knew that's where I should put his ashes. He really threw himself into that work, so it made appropriate sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other side of the table, a lot less known about uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Levin here. As usual. As as we become accustomed to, uh, in 1994 he hopped over to Valiant's acclaim line. He was drawing. He started drawing Exo Manowar. Uh, this connection, plus his self-education in computer art, would lead him to video games. Uh, he then spent 15 years developing video games, the last seven of which he spent uh, instructing labs for Full Sail University's gaming department in Winter Park, Florida. Uh, he continued drawing for comics, all original graphic novels. This is uh, Avengers Galactic Storm, came out February 2006, and Death Hawk the Soul Worm Saga came out September 2008. Uh, this is another uh, sad story yep. here. Uh, he, he would pass away June 12th, 2010, in Tampa, Florida, due to complications caused by cancer. Yeah, it's uh, it's too bad. A couple of young guys really, uh, you know, sure. cut out. But these things happen, and they did both. They did leave behind, among other great works, Cap Wolf. So, this is uh, true. I don't think most of us will have. A legacy that uh, good, so <laughs> applaud. <laughs> or them. even half as good. Yeah. Please. So uh, anyway, uh, we want. I want to talk a little bit about werewolves in general culture, and then we'll talk about mm. them in comics. Uh, the werewolf. The word werewolf comes from the old English compound werewolf. This means word means man, and wolf means, not surprisingly, wolf. There are a few references of men changing into wolves found in ancient literature and mythology. In Herodotus, in in his histories from 440 BC, he wrote that a tribe called the Nuri were all transformed into wolves once every year for several days, and then changed back to their human shape. In the 2nd century BC, the Greek geographer uh, Pausanias told of Lycaon, who was transformed into a wolf because he had ritually murdered a child. Hmm. Sure. Yeah, why not? Uh, Ancient Roman philosopher Pliny the Elder, who lived from 23 AD to 79 AD, wrote of a man who hung his clothes on an ash tree and swam across a lake, transforming him into a wolf. On the condition that he attacked no human being for nine years, he would be free to swim back across the lake to resume his human form. Uh, Yeah, weird, huh? Uh, Pliny is Pliny or Pliny? I say Pliny. Pliny works. Okay. Yeah. Pliny also tells a tale of a man who was turned into a wolf after tasting the entrails of a human child, but was restored to human form ten years later. In the sat- satrica- satricon? Satricon? Satiricon. 
Satyricon, I love it. Uh, written in Latin, circa AD 60, by Gaius Petronius Arbiter. <laughs> <laughs> there is an incident at a banquet as told by one of the characters. Niceros says, When I look for my buddy, I see he'd stripped and piled his clothes by the roadside. He pees in a circle round his clothes and then, just like that, turns into a wolf. After he turned into a wolf, he started howling and then ran off into the woods. And that's how he got away with not paying the bill. That's true. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try that. <laughs> Next time, bust into a wolf. Yeah. Uh, then there's some more incidences of wolves through the uh, history. In Marie de France's poem, Bisclave, it's circa 1200, she tells of the noble woman Bisone, who for unknown reasons had to transform into a wolf every week. Uh, in the 11th century, Belarusian Prince Veselov of Polatsk was considered to have been a werewolf capable of moving at superhuman speeds, as, speeds, as recounted in the tale of Igor's campaign. Uh, Vissalaf the prince judged men as prince. He ruled towns, but at night he prowled in the guise of a wolf. From Kiev, prowling, he reached before the cock's crew. Tmut Rokan, the path of sure. the great sun, as a wolf, prowling, he crossed. For, in, for him in Polotsk, they rang... For matins early at St. Sophia the Bells, but he heard the ringing in Kiev. Sure. That's mm-hmm. how fast he was. He was able to was outrun the bell. Uh, the German word Werwolf is recorded by Bukhard von Worms, Worms in the 11th century and told by Bertold of Regensburg in the 13th, but it's not recorded in all known medieval German poetry or fiction. Just those words do exist, so we assume that there were some stories, but they... To have not filtered down to modern times where they've been destroyed. And also, in stories over the centuries, some demons and angels were shapeshifters, and one of the things they could become were wolves. Uh, but often, it, that, wasn't, that wasn't their only limiting factor. They could be bats, smoke, anything. You know, they do a lot of things. Sure. Now, Tales of the Modern Werewolf, whose change is dictated by the Luna Cycle and not a sense of morality, became widespread in the 14th century. In Germany, werewolves supported claims for a witch hunt. In Slavic countries, the wolvish shapeshifters, they had called the Vikolak, were, uh, or is it Vikolak? Vikolak, Vikolak. They, were, they were related to vampires. Uh, werewolves became a popular idea during the European witch trials that took place in the late 1500s and 1600s. Uh, an idea developing from the belief that witches charmed wolves, sometimes rode them around, and eventually turned into them. Uh, people could be sentenced to prison for life or executed due to others claiming them as werewolves during this time. And this would spread to America around the 1620s. Yep. Uh, early North American werewolves concepts were more about spiritual or paranormal beasts, sometimes possessing people and causing irreversible change. Uh, no real cases of people changing back and forth from human to wolf. Uh, the next, the Naxapi Indians believe that the caribou afterlife is guarded by giant wolves, which kill careless hunters venturing too near. Uh, the Navajo people feared witches in wolf's clothing called Maikab. Uh, now, belief in Loup Garou? Mm-hmm. Cool. Sounds good. <laughs> yes. Belief in them, present in Canada, the upper and lower peninsulas of Michigan and upstate New York, originate, originates from French folklore influenced by Native American stories on the Wendigo. Yeah, and we can, you can learn more about that in the Wendigo in our series about uh, 
was a Wolverine and the Hulk. Remember yep. Hulk number one twenty? Incredible Hulk one eighty one. Yeah, that's one eighty one. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but something else I want I want to mention that in the sixteenth century, as the European Renaissance was heating up and more and more people were moving into previously unclaimed spaces, essentially turning into the cities that we know today, they were you know forming you know more urban spaces mm-hmm. uh, not to mention at the same time now they're sailing back and forth to the uh, new worlds and setting up shop in america wolf packs became a prevalent and pretty scary consideration for people foraging into these new territories so this is why i think excuse me <clears throat> this is why i think werewolves became a more prevalent fear you know because yeah, wolves were, up steam sure they were more of a fear uh, besides this, like like I say, they were moving away from smaller insular societies and pagan religions in favor of Judeo-Christianity. And many of these pagan religions would have woven gods or different animal gods, and wolves might be some of them. So kind of a way to demonize the wolf in a, in a sense. Uh, that's a little bit of kind of historical conjecture, but it's something to consider why these stories started becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, over the years, various methods for becoming a werewolf have been pr- pr- have been reported. Some of them are very simple. A lot of them are more difficult. For example, <laughs> one of the simple ones is wearing a full wolf skin or removing your clothing and putting on a belt made of wolf skin. It's pretty easy, easy. enough. Seems pretty easy. Uh, <laughs> there might be magic salves, drinking rainwater from the footprint of a wolf. Uh, in the 16th century, the Swedish writer Olas Magnus says that the Livonian werewolves were initiated. By draining a cup, a cup of specially prepared beer and repeating a set formula, uh, in uh, Ralston, in his songs of the Russian people, gives form of incantation that's still familiar to Russia. Uh, in Italy, France, and Germany, it was said that a man or woman could turn into a werewolf if he or she, on a certain Wednesday or Friday, slept outside on a summer night with the full moon shining directly on his or her face. So, just gotta find the right date. That's it. And of course, being bitten but not consumed by a werewolf in the 20th century. That's what we more or less know is how do you become a werewolf. Yes. And then in the 19th century, werewolf fiction spiked. Uh, we have The Man Wolf in 1831 by Leech Ritchie. Uh, did, that depicts a werewolf in an 11th century setting. We have Hughes the Werewolf in uh, 1838 by Sutherland Menzies. Uh, the short story, A Story of the Werewolf. In uh, 1846 by Catherine Crow. That's probably the uh, first werewolf story written by a woman. We have Wagner the Werewolf in 1847 by G.W.M. Reynolds. The Wolf Leader in 1857 by Alexander Dumas. We have Hugues de Loup in 1869 by Erxman Chatrain. We have uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1886. That can sort of be considered a werewolf story. Yeah, I mean, you know, he turns into a monster that reddens people limb from limb, you know, and has mm-hmm. a kind of hairy countenance. Maybe he doesn't howl at the moon, but uh, definitely there's a transformation and a morality story going on there that seems to certainly. be prevalent. in. Uh, it, it, you can see that it has its roots in, in the... The traditional werewolf story. Yeah, definitely. Say. You know, people, yeah. they became werewolves because they ate children's entrails or whatever it is. <laughs> or didn't want to pay the bill. <laughs> Two <laughs> options. Uh, the popularity of werewolves would increase in the 20th century to the extent that we cannot and will not list all the werewolf-related works from that era. But here are a few of the more notable ones. The most famous werewolf novel ever was The Werewolf of Paris, 1933, by American author Guy Endor. This was adapted as The Curse of the Werewolf in 1961, directed by Terence Fisher for Hammer Film Productions. 
The first feature film to use an anthropomorphic werewolf was Werewolf of London in 1935, directed by Stuart Walker and distributed by Universal Pictures. The bulk of the modern understanding of the werewolf myth, though, comes from 1941's The Wolfman, directed by George Wagner and starring Lon Chaney Jr. for Universal Pictures. Lon Chaney would reprise his werewolf role in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, 1943, House of Frankenstein, 1944, House of Dracula, 1945, and Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, 1948. So, mm. <laughs> ran the gamut there. Uh, Jack Williamson's expanded werewolf novel, Darker Than You Think, came out in 1948 for Fantasy Press. Neil Gaiman has said this was a very influential novel on him. And we would be remiss to forget American International Pictures' I Was a Teenage Werewolf, 1957, directed by Gene Fowler Jr. and starring none other than Michael Landon. Hmm. Uh, now, uh, the debut by novel best-selling author Whitney Stryber, titled The Wolven in 1978, is about a hard-boiled New York City detective uh, investigating a string of grisly murders. Surprise, surprise, they were caused by werewolves. Uh, two popular werewolf films came out in 1981. We had The Howling, directed by Joe Dante for Avco Embassy Pictures, and An American Werewolf in London, directed by John Landis for Universal. Uh, Silver Bullet in 1985, uh, directed by Dan Atlas for Dino and Martha De Laurentiis for Paramount Pictures. Uh, that's based on the novella Cycle of the Werewolf, uh, came out in 1985 by Stephen King. We have Teen Wolf, 1985, yes. directed by Rod Daniel and starring Michael J. Fox. That was co-written by, uh, you know, comic comic guy Jeff Loeb. Wow. How about that? Yeah. Uh, Teen Wolf 2, 1987, directed by Christopher Leach. They lost Michael J. Fox, but they gained a Jason Bateman. Uh, both of these movies were distributed by Atlantic Releasing Corporation. Uh, jump ahead a couple of decades here. We have Underworld in 2003. Directed by Len Wiseman for Screen Gems Productions. Uh, that spawned a series of werewolf-related uh, movies, including Underworld Evolution in 2006, Underworld Rise of the Lycans in 2009, Underworld Awakenings in 2012, and uh, just last year, Underworld Blood Wars 2016. Yeah. And uh, we probably ought to mention The Twilight Saga by Stephanie Meyer <laughs> that began in 2005, published by Little Brown and Company, that features a new breed of werewolf, which uh, I don't think we know a whole lot about, but we just know that they are they exist. Yeah, I don't really want to know a lot about it. Uh, it seems like... Oh, I do know that in those books, the, like, vampires can, like, they can be in the sun, right? Yeah, and don't they, they, don't they, 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 yeah, they wear glitter. And I, and I, exactly. I think, I think it's similar, <laughs> like, the werewolf is, like, able to just bust it out whenever there's no, like, onus, there's no compunction. I mean, mm. to me, a big component of these stories is the tragedy of being a werewolf. That there's no control. Yeah. yeah. It's, and, and, like, and if, if you can just kind of be a werewolf when it's convenient, well, who the hell wouldn't want to be a werewolf? I mean, really, now, you know, please sign me up. <laughs> and several years ago, I helped uh, build a Hobby Lobby. And I would come home every day covered in glitter. So I wonder if I was uh, turning into a vampire. You might have been. You might have a little bit of, uh, got a little vampirism there if you didn't. Look oh out. boy! Yeah, I gotta well. get a blood test. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> uh, now that's all just kind of general culture, general fiction, uh, specifically to comics. Though there is a little werewolf history. Uh, werewolves appeared regularly in comics. Regularly in comics after World War II, when horror comics would surge in popularity, and for a time they practically dominate the medium, uh, from about forty-seven to fifty-four. Tales from the Crypt, The Haunt of Fear, The Vault of Horror by EC Comics. They would have plenty of werewolf stories, and all the also ran horror titles by Harvey Charlton, ACG, and the other publishers. 
plenty of werewolves. And then, what always happens? The comics code. Every time. And the code as defined in 1954 included this provision. Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited. This would curb the appearance of werewolves in traditional four-color comics, as well as put many comics publishers out of business, as we've talked about. Certainly, certainly. Then in 1964, Warren Publishing would launch Creepy, not a comic book, but a black-and-white comics magazine, to which the comics code would not apply. Uh, This was edited by Archie Goodwin, and it was popular enough for them to launch the vertically identical Eerie in 1965. Uh, the virtually identical. Yeah, very, very identical. Yeah, the, <laughs> the title's different. Uh, it is different. Uh, now, their success would get mainstream publishers to try their hand at a sanitized version of the horror genre, uh, you know, evidenced by DC's House of Mystery revitalization in 1968. That was under editor Joe Orlando. In uh, 1971, bowing to pressure, the comics code was amended to allow some horror content. Uh, we have the, uh, the line changed to... Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead or torture shall not be used. Vampires, ghouls, and werewolves shall be permitted to be used when handled in the classic traditions such as Frankenstein, Dracula, and other high-caliber literary works written by Edgar Allan Poe, Saki, Conan Doyle, and other respected authors whose works are read in schools around the world. I mean, now they're really loosening it up, boy, because yeah. it's like with a respected work, it starts to get uh, the idea of it. But Very nebulous. Uh, yeah, they were like chipping away at this uh, for, for a while, and finally the tipping point was here. So as soon as this happened, Marvel especially, uh, I, I don't think DC had a specific werewolf title, but I think they started, creep- think one, yeah. started creeping back into their horror titles sometimes. But... Uh, at this, Marvel started correcting werewolf as well as vampire content immediately. Jack Russell, a.k.a. Werewolf by Night, first appearing in Marvel Spotlight number 2, February 1972. That was Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, and Mike Plug. And as mentioned, John Jameson appeared as Manwolf in many issues of Amazing Spider-Man, penned by Jerry Conway, as well as the lead, fi- lead fi- feature in seven issues of Creatures on the Loose. The uh, comics code would erode over time, and eventually werewolves became more commonplace in comic book stories. Yes, and can we all know about the wandering wolfman who helped uh, change some of that? Yeah, we that, we should probably mention that because you know that's Wolfman that that would really brought the discussion to the table to change the comics mm-hmm. code was that Marvel Wolfman wrote a story for I can't remember the anthology now. One, one of, of the Marvel. DC ones, yeah. Was oh, it this Marvel one? It might have been a DC. You're right now. I think it was a DC mm-hmm. House of Secrets or something like that. It's one of those, yeah. And the uh, editors opened it with, with uh, yeah, it was because it was... Uh, Len uh, Wein. It was, but it was Kane, right? It was Kane was the hosting the book. It must have been House of Secrets. Yes, House of Secrets. And he said the next the next story is written by a wandering wolfman, and it was Marv Wolfman. And when the comics code complained, uh, they were like, "But he, his, that's really his name." That's his that's, name. We'll show you his birth certificate. And it also that also led to uh, more creators getting credited. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's it's a good uh, thing on anyway. Yes. Really, a, a wolfman made it happen. So that's that's where it's all from. <laughs> it's a good thing he was wandering that yeah. day. Uh, now, you know, it, these these characters don't just change into werewolves or wolves <laughs> or wolven creatures. They also have some other bizarre transformations. And, you know, we probably could do a whole podcast or a whole series of podcasts <laughs> on the weird forms taken by Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. But we will give you a few highlights. In uh, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 32, cover date October 1958. 
Some green-skinned folks from Jupiter turn Jimmy into one of their own for a week. That grants him temporary telepathy. Sure. Uh, why not? <laughs> a special serum turned him into Elastic Lad for the first time in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 31, 1958. Uh, he also becomes the giant, bug-eyed, bridge-destroying monster they call Tidal Boy. In Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 53, cover date, June 1961. Yeah, that's probably the most famous one with the image of uh, yep. the giant <laughs> breaking a bridge down on the cover. But it happened all the time. We could also do an entire podcast or a series on the many times in the Silver Age that DC Comics made characters temporarily fat or made them <laughs> children or babies. They just loved it. They loved doing this mm-hmm. constantly. Uh, all this the time. Is, that's sort of where Donna Troy comes out of, is, is, is like turning <laughs> yep. these characters into babies and children all the time. But we're not going to get into that because that's no. not the kind of transformation that we're mean. We mean more of a total character transformation into something, you know, brand new, I guess. So uh, a few more. Batman and Robin become Flatman and Ribbon in Batman number 134, September 1960. They get real flattened out. In Superboy number 103, March 1963, this one I love, he travels through three periods of time. He hangs out with King Arthur and Camelot. He becomes Billy the Kid in the Wild West, but most transformatively becomes the Sphinx in ancient Egypt. It's like, what the heck? Uh, I don't remember hearing about that, but all right. Uh, In... uh, Batman number 162 from March 1964. Batman's turned into a rampaging monster similar to King Kong by a ray of some kind. He climbs Gotham's equivalent of Empire State Building and bats away planes and stuff, so that's weird. There you go. Uh, across the street at Marvel, they uh, they were not going to be uh, undersold here. They uh, also did uh, some transformations on their own. We have Amazing Spider-Man number 100, cover date September 1971. Peter Parker drinks a chemical cocktail meant to strip him of his spider-like powers. However, instead he finds himself growing a couple <laughs> more pairs of arms. Uh, the sixth-armed Spider-Man lasts for two more issues before he's eventually cured by an antidote developed by Dr. Kurt Connors. Uh, also, the end of Thor, number 363, January 1986, by Walter Simonson. Thor is turned into a frog, uh, indirectly because of his brother Loki. He remains a frog called Throg for four issues. So that was pretty cool. And then, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, the Throg comics are, are pretty uh, well remembered. Yeah. We've talked about that Simonson run on Thor. It's, I think, the best run on Thor. I'm not, I'm not a huge enough Thor fan to say. But that's a run that I can sit and enjoy. It it really is uh, fun and really crazy. But I know we haven't covered every comic book transformation that might apply, and we would love to hear what you out there think of uh, when you think of comic book transformations or what you think of Cap Wolf or Mark Gronewald or Rick Levins or Werewolves or any of the things we've talked about today. And if you'd like to talk with us about them, we'd invite you to email us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can check us out on Facebook at Cosmic T-Mill History, on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And I tell you every week, and I'll tell you now to go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com. I almost I almost went back to your old URL there, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I tell you, Chris has been real busy last couple of weeks. So I'm not going to reveal the uh, inside <laughs> baseball, but he still has kept every single day. He has not missed yep. a day. A, a different DC comic every day. Uh, Really running the gamut now. You know, you're doing some rebirth up there. Mm-hmm. You're doing some Bronze Age stuff. Uh, it's fantastic, folks. You, you really need to Thank check you. it out. Also, as I've said before, sometimes acts as a corollary 
to this show. Uh, it not to mention it's a place you can also find episodes of our show if you are so inclined to get it that way. Certainly. Uh, but I think that's all we got. What, what else do we got for him? I just wanted to make sure we uh, we send out another thank you for, to uh, Paul EP for uh, the suggestion. For sure. yeah. uh, it's uh it's one of those it's one of those stories that I, I'm not sure we would have gotten to if uh, no. if not for a suggestion. So I'm really really glad that he did. And uh, you know, despite my <laughs> my misgivings for it, I I I can't deny that it's a lot of fun to read this kind of story. Yeah, the, the, you know, the, these are the kind of things, uh, you know, we. Uh... Exactly. We we need we need your help to get us to lead us to the, to the light in these kind of situations, folks. So uh, definitely, I very much appreciate that from Paul. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are still welcoming everyone's suggestions. Uh, I, I just want to take a brief second to say, like you know, if people think we we have forgotten or we're not going to get to them, we have a quite a long list, and we don't yes. do it in order. <laughs> there are a lot of factors that decide which ones we do. But you know, if you're really worried, you think we forgot. You can contact us again and remind us, but chances are we will get to it when we can get to it. Uh, But anyway, keep them coming, folks. Don't be afraid to keep recommending comics. We will do our best to accommodate as many as we can. But I think that's all we got for them. So uh, if if you don't get anything else for them, until next time, I want everyone to keep it on the treadmill wolvishly. (laughs) See ya. werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand. Walking through the streets of Soho in the rain He was looking for the place called Lee Ho Fuchs Gonna get a big dish of beef chow mein